0: we ourselves our own humanity has been invented by us so we are technological in that sense humanity is technological it is a kind of technology something we invented but we're the ones who invented it so we are both the parent and the child we are the creator and the created we are the shaped and the shaper
1: this is Sachin and this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you.
2: Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Kevin Kelly, one of the leading and deepest thinkers on technology of our time. A startling percentage of what has been meaningfully said about technology in the past quarter century can be traced back to him, something we don't say lightly. Kevin Kelly co-founded Wired in 1993 and served as its executive editor for seven years. He has written a number of best-selling books, including New Rules for the New Economy, Out of Control, The Inevitable, and What Technology Wants. In this conversation,
1: we focus on sketching out the nature of technology and software, the relationship between technology and change, the limitations of software, and Kevin's 1998 gem, New Rules for the New Economy, which outlines principles to navigate a world transformed by software and the internet. Welcome, Kevin. We would love to start, start with definitions, if you will. What is technology? What is its nature? And how do you break down the key components of technology?
0: So thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. It's a great first question. It's a question that actually doesn't get asked enough because even though technology is something that surrounds us, we actually don't have a very good sense of what it is. The common use of the term is basically anything that's new, whereas actually we know that technology, most of what surrounds us is very old. Concrete and pipes and electricity and lights and all these things um, are also technology, but so are the cultural things. Civilization itself is basically, in my broad definition, something that we created. So I would say technology is anything that our minds make or maybe even anything that minds of any sort make when the beaver is damming a river that dam is a kind of technology it's an it's an you know it comes from a mind a brain so i would say broadly it is forms of physical forms that have been or intangible even but i would guess real forms that have been produced by a mind And so, in the broadest sense, I even would include our own humanity as a kind of technology in the sense that we have modified ourselves genetically through our use of the technology of fire and of domestication of milking animals. As soon as we invented milking animals, we developed lactose tolerance in adults genetically. So... For me it's a very broad idea of the modification of the world through our brains. That's one definition that is a good place to start. I have a broader definition that we can get to later.
1: And are there any thoughts on how do you how do you
0: define the nature of technology
1: and are there any key components if you will which constitute technology?
0: Yeah. So if we begin to examine technology and sort of the general directions that technology go, and I think there are directions, they're not destinies, they aren't endpoints. There is not an omega point, there's not a ladder, but there are kind of radiating out general directions in the same way that there are general directions in evolution of life. That's a controversial statement, but there is a subset of evolutionary biologists who acknowledge that there are general trends and directions in evolution. And those general trends are increasing complexity, increasing mutualism, increasing specialization, increasing sentence. And so, if we, if we look at the general trends of evolution in this as a self-organizing system that occurred in the planet… We see that technology also is kind of following the same general trends, meaning that at first we make a kind of a general tool and then over time we'll make specialized versions of it. So we make a stone hammer, it does everything that hammering would want to do. And then over time we make specialized hammers for working metal or for doing jewelry or for forging. We make a camera, It's just one camera that does everything. And then over time, we make an underwater camera or a high-speed camera or infrared camera or an infrared high-speed underwater camera. And so we constantly specialize. And that's the general trend in evolution as well, where we start off with a general cell. And over time, we have more specialized cells, including about 57 in our own body, 57 different cell types. So those patterns suggest that... At its nature, technology, which comes from minds, is really an extension and acceleration of evolution itself, as evolution as as a kind of a cosmic force in the universe, as as a force that is self-organizing in an exotropic way, meaning that it basically generates entropy to further itself. It generates, increases disorder in order to have a local area of increasing order. And that sense of um, an exotropic phenomena is what I would say technology is at its core. It's a self-organizing exotropic force, meaning that it's self-organizing. And it is a cascading sense of it is producing more structured order, which then Becomes a platform for more order on top. As we know, each time there's a species made or created in evolution, it creates a niche for yet more species to live. It's not a zero sum game where a niche, I mean, a species occupies a niche and that can't be any others. It's the opposite. Each new species actually creates more niches for more species. And so that kind of expanding outward blooming of possibilities is, I think, at its core, what technology is. It's a way for the universe to expand the possibility space. Without life and technology, and again, technology is the seventh kingdom of life. It's just another version of life, which has been accelerated and works in, without water. W- without the exotropic thread... Matter can only arrange in a certain number of arrangements that are kind of limited. It's limited the way in which matter could arrange itself. But when life comes along, suddenly you can have all kinds of forms, all kinds of improbable forms existing, like, you know, like a starfish, all those atoms arranged together in this very complicated way that could never be arranged any other way. So, all these improbable forms are, are, are made possible. And as, as powerful as life is in the, in the variety of things that it can arrange, there are these other possibilities of the arrangements of atoms and physical energy that are not possible with life using just sort of carbon-based and other things that are possible with technology. So you could say well, what technology is, is this a way to reach other possibilities. So So you kind of, it's a two-step thing. You have life making all these possible forms, Throughout the universe, not just on this planet. And then it makes a mind which is capable of helping it to arrange into yet other forms and possibilities that it could not get to on its own without the intermediate function of, the, of minds. And so what it's doing is sort of filling the universe with possibilities, In all of each one of them improbable. That's The cosmic force of technology, what it's doing is is each time we make something new, again, we are not just making something new, but we're actually expanding the possibility space for other new things to come along. And even when we are just making trite, simple, trivial things, we're inventing another app, making yet another kind of a toy. We have yet another piece of clothing that's in an interesting fashion. Even when we're doing the most trivial creation, we are actually participating in this big story of bringing yet another possibility into the world, bringing yet another tool. And there's a moral dimension to that as well, which I can talk about. And and, and that's, that's the general bigger theme of an exotropic force in the world that is opening up possibilities and inhabiting the universe with opportunities. That's uh, an absolutely wonderful stream of uh, thoughts. Thank you. So, to your mind, technology cannot exist
2: without cognition.
0: Well, cognition is a strong word, or I should say it's a sophisticated form. Evolution, in the most abstract sense, can be seen as often seen or actually often described as a search function. So evolution, life on earth, is searching the landscape, is searching the world for solutions. And it searches by making lots of variations that try different things, and it gradually climbs the hill in a kind of conceptual sense of fitness. And so it's it's a learning process. Learning meaning that it's trying one thing, and then when it gains an opportunity. It can transfer that learning backwards and move the whole thing forward. So, it's seen as a kind of a learning thing. And they call it hill climbing and other terms in computer science. So, evolution is a kind of learning. It's not self-aware. We might not even call it a type of thinking, but it is a kind of a learning. So, that world of learning, adaptation, search, thinking, consciousness is a continuum in a very large space. It's not a binary thing like someone is thinking or not or they're cognitive or not. So, yes, in a a kind of a mild sense, it is a kind of cognition. But if you're thinking of it as something sophisticated, it's not. It's not self-aware. It's not complex. But it is a kind of learning and a kind of search, a kind of searching. So, I would say it's on the spectrum of a cognitive learning adaptation function but it's not very complex. One of the crazy things, or not crazy, but one of the beautiful things actually about evolution is that it's learning. It relies on the simplest of all learning criteria, which is death, right? I mean, dying is the advancing function. You die off, you eliminate the things that don't work. It's a very crude yet powerful forcing function. So, death is a is a kind of like that's not a very efficient way to learn but but it is effective if you have a lot of time and you don't mind wasting a lot so it's a very wasteful process evolution is incredibly wasteful it's inefficient because it's killing everything in order to learn so it is a kind of learning but it is not a very sophisticated kind of cognition and let's talk about software, which is, of course, a form of an
2: instantiation of technology, a form of right. technology. And let's do the same thing for software. How do you define software? What's the nature of software?
0: Well, the nature of software is that it's it's a kind of a language. It's a grammar. It's, it's code. It's information. It's structure. I mean, it's fundamentally a consequence of information. So it's a very intangible thing. But we have some analogs in the natural world with DNA and genetic information, other analogs with neurons in animals and nervous systems. One of the things we know about the universe is, we have recently understood about it, is that there is a unification between information and energy and matter. I mean, Einstein did the great, brilliant thing of unifying energy and matter, saying they're actually equivalent. Later on, we had Schrodinger and others who showed that, and then Shannon and others, who showed that there was actually an equivalency in information and energy and matter, that the three of them are actually equivalent. You could turn one into the other. And so, we haven't yet gotten very far in physics and reinterpreting physics just purely in informational terms, but I think that will be coming along. And the work of the black holes and others suggest that that's an important idea to do is to understand, translate physics into information only because it could be done, but it's very hard to understand how it is, but there is equivalency. So, I would say that information and therefore software is one way of kind of understanding what's going on in in reality. Physics is fundamentally information at some level. Wheeler... The physicist famously said, "Its are bits. Things, its are bits. So 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 we can we can interpret even physical things in terms of bits. So software, in that sense, is our language, or one of the language for understanding the bits of the universe. Our way of structuring our knowledge about things. And it turns out to be very, very useful for doing things just like understanding physics turns out to be really useful when you're doing engineering so we can engineer and fly to the moon because we have taken our understanding of how the real world works and taking those laws and use them to then artificially create synthetic versions of things and the same thing with i think what we're doing with software is that some of the principles of logic that are real and other things we can extract out and we can make versions of it that work in our little toy computers and they're very useful. So I think fundamentally software in the broadest sense reflects reality, that there's something, the reason why it works is that that because it's true and it's like mathematics, okay? Mathematics works, it's true, It's, it's something that we You know, there's always a question like, does it exist or do we invent it? And the answer is yes. And the same thing with software. Does the software exist or is it something we invented? And the answer is yes. And so what we're doing is using the informational side of reality to get things done. So I'm saying it's a big cosmic thing. There's, you know, there's cosmic software in the universe. And we make little codes and we make little programs that are like physics. They're they're little approximations of reality that work for us that allow us to do important things. And so, I think it's a bottomless universe. There's no end to what we can do or learn with software. We're just beginning, just like we are in physics. I think as we go along into the future, as we begin to understand the the informational side or the informational interpretation of physics, software will become ever more important because we will start to do physics that way as well. So I think software is sort of like in day one. We're day one with software.
1: Is it just like the DNA which would be capturing the way the
0: world works? DNA is a very, very specific language you know there are the multiple languages and software will you know genetic is another very it's a subset of code that works in this you know the base for whatever it is that it's operating in it's a very very specific kind of code and we can translate it back and forth and it's it's the code for life on this planet and probably most other planets i i think if you look if you look at the chemistry of dna molecules and rna as some physicists and chemists have done trying to make alternatives It's very, 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 very difficult to find other molecules that have the characteristics that DNA does, which are this stability at one end and extreme flexibility at the other to form multiple arrangements. And here's the thing. We might be able to find a couple other molecules like that that do that, but to find one that can also self-assemble, we haven't. And so it's very, very likely that DNA is probably the most remarkable molecule in the universe. There may be one other like it that could not only do all the kind of variations that we would need for a molecule like that, but also self assemble. It's very, very unlikely that there are more than two molecules like that in the universe. So it's very probable that other life in the universe will or I would say most of life will probably be DNA-ish.
1: And how would you compare software and technology?
0: Software is one of the technologies that we use. Calendars are a technology. Uh, libraries are technology. Law books are technologies. Language itself is a technology. So, of course, yes, software is, is, is a subset. And I'm, I'm suggesting that it's, it's a very important and powerful one because, as I'm suggesting, that we are in the beginning of a transition to try and reinterpret what we know about the physics of the universe in terms of information and software. We, we haven't done that yet, but we will do that, and software will become ever more important in the more sophisticated things that we want to do. So, in terms
2: of its unique attributes and characteristics within sort of the family of other technologies, if you will, how do you, how do you think about software in that sense, sort of situating conceptually software against the backdrop of other technologies?
0: Um, well, it's, it's a language. It's like mathematics. I would put it kind of right next to math as a fundamental instrument, uh, the fundamental technology. It's like, where do we put mathematics? In the landscape of what we know, where does mathematics sit? Well, it's pretty crucial. I mean, it's kind of foundational. It's, it's near the foundations of things. But can a person affect great change in the world without knowing mathematics? Yes. Because there are so many other people who do, can you do it without mathematics? Well, not indirectly. I mean, somewhere along the line, math is being used, even if you don't know it. So, I would say, in the landscape of what we know and all the technologies that we have, software would sit next to mathematics. I'm not sure where you want to put mathematics, but it'll be the, the the its neighbor would be software.
1: How do you think the
0: human relationship with technology is
1: how what how do you characterize that relationship and take a software prism as well
0: yeah well i would say the human relationship to technology is two-faced and complicated it's two-faced in the sense of this as i said earlier we ourselves our own humanity has been invented by us So, we are technological in that sense. Humanity is technological. It is a kind of technology, something we invented. But we're the ones who invented it. So, we are both the parent and the child. We are the creator and the created. We are the master and the slave. We are the the puppet master and the puppet. We are the shaped and the shaper. Both of those relationships are true. And that is going to be the stance that will be forever. A thousand years from now, we'll still be wrestling with the fact that we are both creating this technology and we're controlled by it. We are both using it and being used by it. That two-faced paradox and dilemma is going to be with us and that is the foundational stance of humans to technology is we are the creators of ourselves, therefore we are the created and the creators. We have both Responsibility and rights on both sides. And that complication will be with us forever. And with software in the picture, is
1: there something which is more distinct? Human relationship with software?
0: Um, I'm trying to imagine a unique relation to, I don't know, if, if like, is there a unique relationship of mathematics to humans? I mean, only in that it it illustrates this question that has always plagued us is, does math exist outside of our minds? Is it something that we discovered or created? And one of the interesting things about a high-dimensional space, when when you have a very, very high-dimensional space, there is topologically no difference in discovering something or inventing something, okay? So the, the process that we would use to discover something the search algorithms that we're doing, almost the kind of the method that we do, is no different than how we invent something. I mean, invention is a kind of discovery. And so, the we somehow in our minds have that there's a distinction between finding something and creating something. But in fact, when it's a complicated, big enough space, there is no difference. The steps that you take to find something are the same to create it. Meaning that if you lost something in space, it's kind of easier to make it than to try to find it, right? I mean, in a high enough dimensional space, it's as improbable to find something by accident. You might as well just make it. Uh, You know, it's it's sort of like I use that example of of a book. It's like, you know, it's like, imagine the Borgian library of all possible books. Have you ever heard that library? This, This is the library where there's a book, then next to it is a book where it's exactly the same, except for one letter is different. And then next to that is the same book, with except one letter is different. And you have the infinite library of all possible books, okay? And so, the idea, well, you could, in that library, is the perfect book, is the great American novel, is, is the book that's better than the Bible, it's, it's, there are all these books that are in this library, but the steps that you would need to go to find that book, because right next to it are the books that are complete gibberish. The steps that you need to find a book are exactly the same steps you would need to write the book. And that's what you're doing when you're writing a book. When you're writing a book, it's like each time you do a letter, you are kind of like moving through that library of all possible books. You're kind of resolving that, that super dis- imposition of, you know, of like the could be dead and alive at the same time. Each time you add a letter, you are collapsing the possibility space towards that improbable book. And so, mathematics is, is a little bit like that, like… Does it exist outside or something we invented? The answer is yes, it's both, and the same with software. So both of those have that kind of nature in them of things that might exist on their own, but we discovered it. But but in fact, we can think of it as something that we invent. So let's introduce the notion of change. We'd love to
2: hear your thoughts on why technology and specifically software are such an integral
0: part of change, sort of the the why around that. Well, the advantage of software these days is that it's powerful enough that we can do simulations, it's like with words, in this case, a language. So the beauty of language, the reason why it was so powerful is that we could simulate things. I could paint a picture of something that didn't exist and I could put it in your mind. And now you have that picture. And I would do that with words, with language. It would take something very, very complicated, and I would simulate a world, I would simulate a character, I would make a description of it, and I pass it to you, and you would have that in your head. And that ability to invent things, to have imagination, to, to, to create very, very quickly is what language gave us. And of course, the most important thing language gave us is access to our own thinking. The, 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 this was the first thing that it did. And that was the main reason why we had it, was, was we had no access to our own thoughts before language. The reason why dogs and gorillas aren't so, aren't very self-conscious is that they don't have a language to interpret or to reflect their own thinking. So they don't have access to the thinking because they don't have the language. So software is another way for us to get access to our ability to simulate, make up, and invent things. And we can do it with code. We can do it with simulations. We can do it with nowadays very sophisticated, software that gives us worlds to see and with AR and VR to actually immerse ourselves into. And in the future, as we make more complicated simulations, we can use that to both imagine what we're doing and as well try to predict what we're doing. And in some cases, even as a substitute for doing things. Why go somewhere when you could actually go somewhere in VR or AR and have an equivalent experience. And so I think that's the the power in the future as as a tool is is that it uh, this is this kind of very godlike language, godlike tool that allows us to create fast, cheap and out of control, create things, both real things and virtual things and simulated things new dimensions and new powers, because we are creative beings. That's what we're here for. We're here to make things, to invent things, to love in new ways, to surprise ourselves. And so this is like a paramount tool for creation. It can accelerate our creating things in the physical world, and it sometimes gets a substitute for that, and other times it's an auxiliary supplement to it. So it's godlike powers that we have one of the things we'll, we'll create is other minds we'll create other realities we'll create other you know cities and all these stuff and so it kind of expands again the possibility space of where we can create and allowing us to make whole new things that could not exist anywhere else so so that's what it is i would call it godlike tool for creation we can do it very, very fast, much faster than moving atoms around. So that's its benefit is speed, agility, range. And, you know, everybody knows that things happen faster in the internet software world, that, that speed, that acceleration. And that's where a lot of the acceleration that I talked about in technology is coming from is the fact that we're um, using the tool software. So if you say godlike My interpretation of that would be that nothing else is more
2: powerful as a. if you think of software as an exogenous force to, you know, change.
0: Yeah, godlike means, I'm not sure. sure. I don't mean godlike in terms of, like, ultimate. I mean godlike in terms of its ability to world-building, its world-building component. I think we are way too ignorant to think that this is the paramount force in the world. I think we'd be just be silly and childlike foolish to claim that this was the paramount force. I think it's, I was using it in terms of its sense of world building, being able to build worlds.
1: And uh, speak to the limitations of software.
0: Oh, what are the limitations of software? That's a good question. Hmm. I think one of the ones that occurred to me is that we are quickly entering the error when the complexity of our software will transcend our understanding. And this enters into the area of, of, of the AIs, plural, that we will make. Any AI that we make that's really interesting is going to be AI that we don't completely understand, or that, that we're incapable of understanding. And so um, the, the, the limitation in that sense, is we will be limited in our understanding of the most complicated softwares that we are going to be making in the future, that the complexity of them, in order to do what we want to do, will be beyond not just one human's understanding, but beyond their collective understanding. But that's actually not new, of course, because we don't understand our own minds, but we use them all the time and we're kind of okay with, I don't understand how your mind works and here I am, we can work together. So we have things like drugs or even a tomato. We don't really understand everything that happens in a tomato, but we can grow tomatoes and eat tomatoes. So, we don't require full understanding of everything to use them, for them to be useful. It's better if we can understand them, but we don't require it. So, we will be making things that are useful that we fully don't understand. That's a limitation in the sense that we would like to understand more about it. And over time, one of the first things we're doing is We're building AIs to try to help us understand and explain that AI. That AI that's watching the first AI, that's the beginning of self-consciousness. That's how it works. As we add more layers of AIs to watch the AIs and explain what the AI is doing, that's how you get self-conscious AI. And so we'll have a cascading layers, concentric layers of AIs trying to peer into and explain the other AIs. And it get even more complicated, but we still won't ever have full understanding of it. And anybody who is kind of like rigidly committed to, to believing that you have to have full understanding is just going to be left behind. So that's one limitation is our understanding. And another limitation is that it does require an infrastructure, requires a sophisticated infrastructure around it. As long as the infrastructure is going, as long as the electricity is on, everything works beautifully. But when electricity goes off, everything stops. I wouldn't call it fragile, but it's it's not as robust as a world or a thing or a system that doesn't use software. Okay, so it's more complicated and sophisticated, but also a little bit more sensitive to the needs of having a large infrastructure working it. Someday the internet will go down around the world and we will be horrified and the world will stop in a way that we didn't even stop with COVID. I mean, it really stop. It'll come back on, but we will realize, oh my gosh, we are totally dependent on this. And if it doesn't work, we're really, can't, nothing can work. There'll be the Amish and a few other people who are just doing their, their stuff, and they're not affected by it by all. I think the limitation of, of the software world and, this, and the world built upon the software is that it does require the technium, requires all these other technologies to support it. And again, I think civilization is basically built to support this. And as long as civilization is kind of working and it's co-dependent on each other, it works great. But when the when the as a disaster does come or some something some event, it will go down and everything will stop at once. And that it will be terrible. So that's the, the limitation is that when it fails, big, it will be a big failure. So generally when you think
2: about the limitations of technology and specifically software, to what extent does it typically converge on the human factor, human mind? in our ability to, I guess, coordinate as a species?
0: I think it aids our coordination. I think that's where we're headed into. We're headed into an age where, for the first time on the planet, we'll enable 1 million or even a billion people to collaborate together in real time. That's only going to be possible with software. Until then, we've always had to collaborate and cooperate when we were adjacent to each other, which was very limiting. So we could have we couldn't make global scale projects so, I think it's, it will further our abilities to collaborate in a way that we can never do before. So, if you think about a theoretical possibility space for technology,
2: to what extent does the human factor limit that possibility space? One very obvious example is fear of technology.
0: I don't think there's a fear of technology. I haven't met, if I look at what people do, I don't see anybody not doing it. I mean, there's people who are afraid to get vaccinated. I guess that's the fear of technology. Anywhere, whether it's a greeting card company or anything else, the hurdles that one has to overcome to produce something new in the world is there all the time. Irregardless of whether it's software or physical, you have to accomplish so much and You have to have so many things. Every startup I know, no matter where it is, is always in a near-death state. That's the definition of a startup because you are starting up in an area where money doesn't solve the problem. Because if money solved the problem, all the big companies in the world would just buy the solution. So by definition, a startup is operating where it's low profitability, low margins, small market, unproven technology, That's by definition where the startup is. So there's going to be a very, very high death rate. So the ones that do succeed are working against all odds. That's independent of software. That's just general.
1: What would make technology
0: irrelevant? Nothing. Technology succeed when they become invisible when they're not seen, when we don't notice them. The reason why we don't think of um, you know plumbing as technology is because unless it's broken, we don't even think about it ever. Uh, I, I use an example of this 1915 Sears catalog where they advertised the home motor, which was this big motor that was gonna drive all the things in your mm-hmm. uh, home, from the refrigerator to the grinder. And well, it, it never happened because Motors succeeded and they became 100 motors in your home and they became invisible and you never saw them and you didn't think about them. And the same thing with, with sensors and AI is that it's going to succeed to the point in, in, in relation to how we don't think about them, how they're not visible to us. And so in, in that sense, it becomes irrelevant in the sense that we don't think about them. And that's, that's the success state. That's what civilization is, the stuff that we don't have to think about. We're not going to think about where our food comes from because that has succeeded. We're not going to think about AI because it's just everywhere. we will think about other things. Globally, there is no technology in the history of the world that has gone extinct, ever. I, I made that challenge on NPR with Robert Kerwitz Radio Lab. and I said, okay, he, he, he didn't believe that. I said, okay, send me an example of a technology that you believe has gone globally extinct, and I will find you a place that they're making it brand new. That is fascinating. And someone was talking about this corn thresher thing, and they were making it brand new in Pakistan. Right now, you could buy a brand new hand-operated corn thresher unit thing. It's globally never extinct. There are more people making telescopes by hand now than have ever made telescopes by hand in the history of the world. for the population, there are more blacksmiths. There are no global extinctions. That's the one of the differences between the technium and biology. It will always have somewhere in the world that this technology is has a use, or even if it's just for a hobby, people doing it. Obsolete. the The general pattern of technologies is that they don't go away. They may no longer be dominant, but they're part of the ecosystem. It's kind of like you know where you have you go out in nature and you have the meadow, and there's still cockroaches. There's still pill bugs that have been around for millions and millions of years. We don't think of them, they aren't charismatic, but they're there and they're part of the ecosystem. The current technologies are unlikely to go away. They will disappear from our consciousness. They will become a minority. They'll become part of the ecosystem. I think in a hundred years, from now 200 years, they will still be TCPIP. they will still be Unix running, probably forever, somewhere.
2: Let's talk about your, again, your landmark contribution to understanding the digital world, which is new rules for the new economy, radical strategies for a connected world. What is your post-mortem on that contribution, I guess, 23-ish years post-publication?
0: I still stand by it. Uh, this is a book I wrote in, uh, first as an article in Wired in 98, or maybe thereabouts. And I wrote, uh, uh, expanded it a little bit into a small book, and it came out just at the dot com bust and when i was trying to do the book tour people were saying see it, it didn't work the the this internet stuff is all bogus it's like you know it's the end the dot you know the dot com thing is is over and i was saying look this has nothing to do with the dot com what i'm talking about are longer term trends There, there it's much deeper than just the dot coms it's about the intangible economy so that was a very hard sell people just didn't quite get it that it was not just about the dot-com businesses because in the beginning that's what people thought well you know it's about online bookstores well it's not just about online bookstores it's about the intangible economy itself so i would say in in post-mortem that perspective has prevailed and people kind of understand now much better what it was that i was talking about In terms of my own analysis, I would not change very much. I recently went through it, and I tweeted the entire book, meaning I took one sentence from every page and tweeted it out. And I was overall impressed. There's not much I would change other than maybe some of the examples. A lot of those businesses are gone. That was something else that um, is a really good lesson. Is the ephemeral nature of most of the… Most businesses in the digital era have a very short lifespan, including the companies that we think of as as monopolies right now. They have a very limited lifespan. They're going to be gone. They're going to be dethroned from their dominant role very, very soon. We don't really have to worry about them too much because there is a very short lifespan in this fast-moving digital uh, intangible economy. So other than the couple of examples that I was using that are outdated, I stand by the, the basic principles, and I haven't really, there's not much more that I would add. I, I think it's, it's some of the best writing
2: I've ever seen, actually, on technology. I don't say that lightly. I, I tend to read a lot about technology. It's um, some of the best I've, I've read. It's, it's beautiful. Maybe speak to sort of some of the fundamental ideas of the book. And I also want to say it's surprising to me
0: that it's not more well-known. But maybe speak to sort of the fundamental ideas Okay. yeah well i would say about the book itself that ai yeah, too would like to wish it was better known it came at the timing of it wasn't perfect but then again there was no way around it and in part because in the 90s uh this was the the challenge that wired magazine had which i co-founded um technology was not cool the cool kid in class was uh, was not the nerd the nerd was the person everybody picked on Um, Nerds were not cool. Nerds were teenagers in the basement who were considered to be um, misfits and outcasts. And part of what we were trying to do is to convince people that this was not just a fringe marginal phenomena. This was going to be the main event. And people did not believe that. They just did not believe that this was going to be the technology was was even worth talking about. So, So that's what it was up against. And one of the reasons why it was kind of overlooked and now, when people read it, they say, well, this is obvious, all this stuff you were writing about. It's all obvious, of course. Well, what can I say? So, the main ideas are that we're moving from or are moving and have moved from an economy based around physical things and energy, uh, physical like that. And we have moving to an economy that's based around intangibles Of which software is one, and that these intangibles have different principles. They they behave differently. The economy as a whole behaves differently than one built around selling physical goods and and even services to some extent. And so, when you move from economy around nouns to ones around verbs, my thesis was that there's going to be it's going to have some basic different behaviors, and I try to talk about what some of those. Different behaviors are that we can expect from an economy built around verbs, actions, intangibles, rather than the physical nouns, which was most of the economy before that. And that's what the book tries to do is to say, well, if, you, if you're if you going to have an economy built around ideas, ideas are really weird. If I have an idea and I give you the idea, we both have the idea. That's not true when I had a barrel of oil. If I had a barrel of oil, I give you the barrel of oil. You have the oil and I don't but that's not true. If I have some software and I give you the software, we both have software. Okay, whoa, that's weird, that's different. We need a whole bunch of different ideas about how does that work? And so that's what the book is exploring was what happens when you have an economy that's based around things like that. And that's what I do. Speak a little bit about this notion of intermediaries. This is a very, I think,
2: counterintuitive insight in your book the networked economy and the network world actually spawns intermediaries. It promotes intermediaries. And that was, I think, somewhat counterintuitive, and it still is actually to this day. Maybe speak a little bit about that, the role of the intermediary moving from an industrialized world to sort of a network digital world.
0: Yes. So you're right. That is one of the kind of misconceptions is that, and it's actually at the heart, that observation is the heart of my other essay on the thousand true fans which is that in a network world it's possible to skip over intermediates in your own uh, relationship of creators to an audience or to customers because of that possibility is people think that that is sort of uh, the main thing but in fact networks can make many new intermediates as well just as networks both encourage solo practitioners they also enable huge organizations of a scale we haven't seen yet before as well. So that's the to me, that's the superpower of networks is that they enable the smallest and the largest and the intermediates all at once. It's not like they're gonna disfavor individuals to be more powerful. Yes, they do that. It's not that they're going to enable corporations to be bigger than they've ever ever been before. Yes, they're going to do that. And it's not just that they enable intermediates and remove intermediates at the same time. Yes, they do that as well. So it is a remarkable phenomena of networks. They they do all those things at the same time, and which is why it's so powerful. You can enable single individuals to become more powerful, it enables large corporations to become more powerful, it enables Intermediates become more powerful and it enables us to eliminate intermediates. Wow, what a tool. So that's what networks do. And it's interesting, you know, it's, it's essential that we understand networks. And a lot of what the book was talking about, was exploring, was a phenomena of networks and how networks are the platform. This was before platforms. I wrote the book before platforms was an idea, but platforms are basically networks that are operated as a as a business. And so, they all operate using the network principles. My book, which is a very short book, by the way, easily read. I recommend people get it. It's almost free on Amazon. And I have a completely digital version on my website. If you are committed to paying nothing, you can read the book online there. It's about networks and how networks work and why this digital economy is something that we should embrace and optimize what motivates you curiosity which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear i believe that we've already been visited by aliens
1: what or who has had the most impact on your thinking
0: career or life stuart brand what are you currently reading Oh, I'm reading The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Last but not the
1: least, who are your favorite writers or podcasters? Noah Smith. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends don't forget to check out the show notes and a quick disclaimer the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization company or management they may be associated with and thank you for listening